0: Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come to the portion of our study tonight, in which we study your word, we ask for the Holy Spirit to illuminate this text for us, to grant us understanding, and to give us the strength and conviction to apply it to our lives. We remember, Lord, that your word is more than sufficient. And that it accomplishes every purpose that You have ordained. And so we ask, Lord, that You would grant us understanding that Your will would be done in our lives and we would grow in the likeness of Christ for His glory. Amen. Well, tonight we're gonna to be concluding our study of the first half of the book of Ephesians by looking at the end of chapter three. So if you have your Bible with you, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter three, verses twenty and twenty-one. You know, I, I don't think it's any secret that I I love Paul's writings. And I think there are a lot of reasons to love Paul's writings, his epistles. Uh, Paul was just a great writer, first of all. He was just a proficient writer. He wrote a lot of letters. And I imagine that we only have just a small fraction of the number of letters that he wrote uh, preserved in our Bibles today. Sometimes he even alludes to other letters than, uh, that he's written that aren't contained in our canons, that, that aren't contained in our Bibles. Uh, but we know this. What we do have is inspired Scripture, and what we don't have isn't one of the things I love about Paul is just the way that he'll, uh, he, he's so systematic. He'll be so systematic in the way that he makes his arguments. Uh, for example, uh, taking the book of Romans, for example, which is uh, the longest of the epistles. Uh, you know, you can break the whole book down into just big chunks, uh, sections that are just big chunks devoted to one subject. Um, in, in Romans, you can break down chapters one through the first half of verse uh, or of chapter three, where he's demonstrating the, the universal guilt of humanity. Uh, in the second half of chapter three to the end of chapter four, he talks about the the provision that God has given of a Savior and the fact that we're saved by uh, by grace alone through faith alone. In chapters five to eight, he discusses the work of God in salvation. Uh, in chapters nine through eleven, he discusses the extent of the application of salvation. And then, in chapters twelve to sixteen, he covers the the practical application that salvation should have in the believer's life and it 's really helpful when you're coming into a book if you understand the way that it 's broken down and that 's one of the reasons you, you know you want a good study Bible where it shows you you know this is this is the theme of this section that you're reading. It's helpful for us to have that kind of a systematic outline. We get confused when we're not exactly sure where an author is going with a various argument or what he's trying to say. But it's never hard to figure out the point that Paul's trying to make because he'll devote entire sections of Scripture, big chunks of Scripture, to uh, To making his argument before he moves on to the next subject, and he'll show that the next subject is closely related to the to the one that he's already established. So he's he's very systematic in the way that he writes, and the Book of Ephesians is no different. The first three chapters of the letter to the Ephesians, which we've uh, which we've been studying for several months now, are filled with theology. It's just filled with with deep and rich. And very important theological truths, and, and, uh, things that, that are very important for us to grasp uh, intellectually, things for us to, to understand. Uh, if you think about the, the things that we've learned about the theological truths that we've seen in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we saw, first of all, God's uh, eternal plans to redeem the elect and how God has elected sons and daughters from every nation, uh, if you think about the way, uh, looking back, that Paul has explained uh, the way that we were uh, brought from death, spiritual death, into life, and he goes on to explain the mystery of the gospel, how it would bring two groups of people with this long history of, of hatred and, and animosity and bitterness toward one another, and he'd unify them through the atoning work of Christ. So these are all very, very important theological truths. But what about the next three chapters? Because we've actually reached the end of the first three chapters. There are a total of six chapters. He spends the next three chapters actually going into the practical applications of the theological truths that we've already learned in the first three chapters. So the next three chapters... Uh, will explain the practical application of God's eternal plan and design for the church to establish, maintain, and grow in unity and corporate purity, individual and corporate purity. So what we'll be looking at today is actually the bridge that connects this first body of, of work, all these theological truths, and the application of those truths. What we'll be looking at today is the bridge. It's it's a benediction, but it's also what we would call a, dux- a doxology. Now, benediction has always been historically an important part of Christian worship and Christian service, uh, but I have to say that it's kind of been lost on the modern church to a large extent. Um, it's really a combination of two words. Benediction is a combination of two words. You've got bena, which means good, and then diction which means word. So good word. That's what a benediction really means. Uh, One of the first major benedictions that we find in scripture, uh, we talked about it this morning, but it's worth mentioning again tonight. It's from Numbers chapter 6 verses 22 to 27, uh, where God is instructing Moses to have Aaron issue a blessing over the people who are gathered in the assembly. And before they go, the priest would raise his hands over the people and he would say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace." We saw that this is called the Aaronic, not ironic, but the Aaronic, because Aaron was the priest who would do it, the Aaronic benediction. But the idea of the benediction, or the prayer, or the blessing over the people is pretty simple. It's, as you go, may the Lord be with you, and may he bless you as you go. So what we're looking at today is a benediction, but it's also a doxology, A doxology, by definition, it's a short burst of praise. If you think about the song that we sang at the beginning of the service tonight, it's probably the shortest song that you can find in any common hymnal. And that makes it helpful for us to remember exactly what it is. Like benediction, the word doxology is composed of two words. It's composed of the Greek word doxa, which means glory and logos which means word or speaking so a doxology is a short and succinct expression of praise or glory unto god so moses chapter 3 has been a prayer for the church or the churches that he was writing to he prayed for them to be strengthened in the power of god and we saw that in verse 16 he prayed that christ would dwell in their hearts We saw that in verse 17. And he prayed these things in order that they, rooted in love, may comprehend with all the saints the vastness of the love of Christ, which he says in verses 18 and 19, exceeds or surpasses knowledge. Paul would commonly do things like this. He would commonly pray for deep and rich blessings For the recipients of his letters. We've seen it in in a lot of his, you know, you can find it in a lot of his letters. Sometimes you'll see it more than once in a letter. Uh, But having prayed for the Father to richly and generously pour out his spiritual blessings on his readers for this letter, Paul now writes a benediction slash doxology, which concludes the third chapter and concludes the doctrinal section of Ephesians and bridges us to the next section. So let's look at verses 20 and 21. Paul writes this. This is, this is the bridge that connects the theological truths of the first three chapters with the application of the second three chapters. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond... How's that for redundant, by the way? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think... According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So, one commentator notes of this conclusion to Paul's prayer that no frame has ever been framed, no prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request. It's as if Paul's saying, I I know that I have been praying for some awesome amazing great things for all of you but I also know that God is able to not only do the things that I'm praying for but he's able to go so far beyond he he doesn't even have a word to express how much God is capable of which is why you have the redundancy of what he says here saying that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond. That's like saying He's able to do more, 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 more than, than I could possibly think or imagine. So really, what hope do we have that could be greater than that? That God is able to do more than we've ever thought. That God is able to do more than we could even possibly imagine. I mean, if you're like me, Maybe you look around at the modern church today. If you're on the internet, it can be kind of scary. Because as you look at the modern church, you find an incredible amount of discord. You find an incredible amount of of disharmony. You find so much disagreement and such a lack of discernment. To use another word that starts with D to maybe describe how it makes you feel. It's kind of depressing. But we have to remember that God's the one who's in charge of His church. God is the one who's building His church. And God can do more than we can possibly imagine to grow, to build, to unify, to edify His church. Not just to save the church. She's His bride. She's His bride. So... He can teach her. He can strengthen her. He can establish her. He can grow her. He will adorn her with grace and truth and mercy and righteousness and love and holiness. In the end, the work of God to establish and to build and to adorn the church will be unfathomably beautiful incomparable to anything that that our minds have ever conceived of before and who's going to get the glory in all these things the god who's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us god is the one god alone will be the one to get the glory If you look at the church, it's obvious that none of us are getting the glory. Everything that we are at the individual level, we are by God's grace and His power working within us. And how much more true is that of the church as a whole? It's all the power of God. It's all the grace of God. The idea here is that we can never expect or ask too much of God because He's able to do more than we can ever fathom. The God who spoke the heavens and the earth into being out of nothing is far more than able to not only hear us, but to answer our prayers and then some. The God who imparts life and flesh to dry bones is far above and beyond more than able to hear and answer our prayers. And so if we're asking if we're petitioning Him in accordance with His will and with His nature, you can't even say that the sky is the limit. There are no limitations to what God can do. So with that said, I want to encourage you to not shy away from asking for great things from God. Of course, with the understanding that sometimes the greater blessing is for God to say no I'm not going to give you what you want. Sometimes the greater blessing is found in saying uh, no to our selfish or worldly petitions. I mean, in in seven plus years of full-time ministry here in Linwood, I I can't even count the number of times that I, I can look back and think to myself, man, I am so glad that God did not answer that prayer the way that I had asked it. So while we can't be We can't ask too much from God. We also have to be realistic with the application of this passage. We have to be mindful of the mystery between God's sovereign and unchanging will and the instruction that we are to come to Him with our petitions. And not only to come to Him with our requests, but to be persistent. God has an unchanging will, and yet He says to pray with persistence. And it seems like there's an unresolvable tension in there, but there, there is a mystery there. You know, for example, we, we pray for, for Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. Maybe they're even being martyred. And yet they end up being killed for their faith. Maybe you know somebody who was sick. Maybe they were dying. And so, so you pray for them and you pray for them persistently and consistently, and God doesn't heal them. How does that work? How many times have you prayed for something only to grow discouraged and to just give up? I think that's one of the great dangers that we all face in the world. You know, it's, it's really challenging. It's really difficult to pray for something continually, only to not see those prayers answered in the way that you thought they would be, or could be, or should be. But we need to see Christ as our model, as He prayed. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thy will be done. So the Father. What I've found over the years, in my experience as a Christian and as I've wrestled with this mystery between God's sovereign, unchanging will and His instruction for me to pray with persistent consistency is that the act of praying often doesn't change the situation as I would like, but it changes me. It changes my my attitude. It changes my perspective because I come to remember that if God wants to change the situation if it's his will to change the situation he is far far more than able to do so so it changes my attitude it changes my will i'm forced to remind myself that god's will will be done and that his will is always better than my will and it changes my desires Instead of wanting comfort or convenience, I stop desiring selfish things and I start desiring the things that God desires. You know, as we're looking at this text, one of the things that we should make note of here is the context. Paul actually isn't talking about doing physical miracles, about God doing physical miracles. In fact, he never prays in all of his books, in all of his letters... He never prays for somebody to be healed. He never prays for the persecution that they're facing to be done away with. Isn't that interesting? What he does is he prays for them to to have the strength of the Spirit working within his audience. In this case... Paul isn't praying that their their sickness would be cured. He's not praying that their financial wealth would be multiplied many times over. No, he's praying about their spiritual health and growth. And how does that happen? Well, it, it seems, based on the context here, it seems to be connected to understanding the fullness of God's love for us in Christ. Because the more we understand the love that God has for us, the more we will grow and mature in a spiritual sense. So the words that Paul uses here, I mean, he, he's, he's doing everything that he can to capture and to, to captivate our, our minds, our, our imagination, our amazement. It should evoke wonder and awe to consider that God is not only capable of blessing us, not only capable of blessing us exceedingly, but He's able to do it to a degree that is higher than our minds can possibly reach. Greater than our minds could possibly fathom, R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says this. He says, quote, "In a sense, there can be no exaggeration of how much God is prepared to do for His church, nor for how long." End quote. And that's interesting. Note the the aspect of duration that Paul prays for in this benediction/doxology. He says to all generations, forever and ever. You know what that means? It means He was praying for us. He was praying for us in our day and age. Because what was true of the first century church is equally true of the modern church almost 2,000 years later. And that's this. It is all God's work. He's sovereign over the church. He's the one who builds it. He's the one who sustains it. He's the one who grows it. He's the one who nurtures it. It is all God's work. The church has survived for 2,000 years not because she's so culturally savvy, not because she's just so smart or just so cool. It's not because she's she's even so dedicated to the proclamation of the gospel. No, history actually shows that the church is very, very prone to stray. That's what the Reformation was all about. That's... It's a very important word. It's reformation. It was reforming the church. It was bringing the church back after she had strayed for so many years. It was bringing the church back to the truths that she had abandoned, that she had strayed from over the years, over the centuries. Now the reason that Christianity still stands is because God continues to work in her and through her and build her up in accordance with his own sovereign will for the church. One of the central points that we've seen so far in the first three chapters here has been what the the Apostles' Creed calls the communion of the saints. Now, since we refer to the Lord's Supper as communion, some people have mistakenly thought that that's what the communion of the saints is. It's It's taking communion. Uh, That's not what it's referring to. Uh, The communion of the saints is a term that's used to express the unity of uh, of the body of Christ through the ages. Now, if you Google the term communion of saints, the definition that Google will give you, like at the top of the page, is this. A fellowship between Christians living and dead. Now, I don't know if Google answers everything theologically, you know, uh, correctly, but yet this is correct. Anytime we talk about the unity of the church, the communion of the saints, we have to make a vital distinction between the visible church and the invisible church. So just like it sounds, you can't see the invisible church. You can, you can see the visible church. The visible church is The institution. Right It's, it's the, the people who gather on any given day, whatever day they gather, uh, usually Sunday, uh, but it's, it's the gathering of a group of people for the sake of studying the scriptures and, and worshiping God. In a church like ours, uh, you know our church consists of anyone who makes a profession of faith and who is capable of sitting in one of the chairs in the sanctuary. That is the visible church but here's where we need to make a distinction. There's a vast difference between someone making a profession of faith and actually having a possession of faith. Jesus warned us repeatedly of the reality that there would be people who honored Him with their lips and yet whose hearts were nevertheless far away. The visible church, Jesus very specifically warned us, would consist of two types of people. Those who are redeemed and those who are not. Those who are truly redeemed and who are regenerated, born again, that's what we call the invisible church. So what we need to understand is that those in the invisible church have union with Christ, but not all in the visible church have union with Christ. Those in the invisible church also have union with the Holy Spirit, while not everyone in the visible church does. And finally, central to the theme of the book of Ephesians is the fact that the invisible church has union with one another, not only with the people that we can see and talk to, but also with every other member of the invisible church, every legitimate Christian, who's ever lived and so the question that you might ask is how, how is that even possible how can I have unity with somebody I've, I've never ever met how can I have unity with somebody who lived in a different time than me or how about this here's a question since Christians do sin against one another it I mean it unfortunately does happen but since Christians do sin against one another from time to time Am I united to somebody who sins against me and dies before we can be reconciled? And the answer is yes. How? Because the basis of our unity is not on things that we do. The basis of our unity is built on the fact that Christ has united us. That He has united us and thereby canceling the greater debt that we owe to God, and He also taught us to pray, teach us to forgive as we've been forgiven. That's the basis. Christ's work is the basis for our unity. Because of what Christ did to reconcile us to God, we've got a stronger unity, a stronger oneness or bond to somebody else who's a member of the invisible church whom we've never met who may have even sinned against us. We've got a stronger bond with them than we do with a blood relative who isn't saved. Because the basis of our unity is Christ's work. And because the basis of our unity is Christ's work, He's the one who gets the glory. See, if there's something that I have to do to be united with with Christ, we would recognize that's heresy, because it's denying sola fide. It's denying that we're saved by faith alone. If you say that you have some obligation to do something in order to be saved, that's saying you're saved by something that you do, not something that God does. But the unity within the body of Christ, the invisible church, works exactly the same way. We don't earn our way in We don't earn unity with one another, just like we can't earn our way out. Because if we could, we would. And we would have a long time ago, every single one of us. But because Christ's work unifies us with the body of Christ, it is a done deal. And He alone gets the glory for that unity. If there's something that I have to do to have unity with a fellow brother in Christ, then I can lay claim to some of the glory. But scripture is clear. The glory is all God's. Because it's built on what Christ did. What great hope that should give us in our day and age. When we have a lot of Christians out there insisting that our unity needs to be earned. we need to do something in in addition to what Christ has already done to unify us to God now we have to do something extra to gain a unity with with a fellow believer that is heretical that is nonsense to use the words of R.C. Sproul in in a totally different and unrelated context what I want to say to these people is what's wrong with you people no we don't have to earn fellowship it's been paid for The unity of the invisible church is based on what Christ did, not on what I do or somebody else does. It's the work of God. And so the unity of the invisible church will always, always continue. Despite the heretics who are saying that that fellowship has to be earned, the unity of the invisible church will continue because it's the work of God. And man cannot thwart or destroy what God has sovereignly ordained to build the reason God created the world is the same reason that he has established and continues to bless and to grow the invisible church and that is for his glory alone so with that said as we conclude the third chapter let me encourage you to pray for yourself and for our own little church here. That God would bless us. That God would sustain us. That He would grow us in our understanding of God's unfathomable love for us in Christ. And, if it be His will, that He would grow us numerically. But either way, that He would do through us that which is humanly unexplainable and that it would all be for the glory of Christ because His Word assures us that He is abundantly beyond more than able. Let's pray. Our Father, we can find great encouragement in your word in regards to the unity of the church. We thank you that the unity of the church is based on the work of Christ and that we are one with one another because of what he has done for us, canceling our sin debt as we forgive those who sin against us. Based only on the merit of Christ. It is more than enough. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do more than we can imagine with each one of us, that you would grow us in ways that have no other human explanation, that your glory would be seen in our lives, your goodness would be seen in our lives your grace would be seen in our lives in such a consistent way that people would be catching a glimpse of your goodness and your grace and your love. And we pray these things that Christ would be glorified and that your church would be unified. In Jesus' name, amen.